dear listeners, and welcome to Deutsche Grammophon's international podcast series. I'm Sarah Willis, and I am just loving podcasting with the Deutsche Grammophon's star-studded cast of musicians. Before I met today's guest a few years ago, I was, to be honest, not really that interested in the mandolin at all. <laughs> in school, we learned that the mandolin was a stringed instrument played by wandering minstrels singing about love and life. But Avi Avital changed all that. He is not only a great player and a great musician, he's a wonderful ambassador for his instrument, and his next album is called The Art of the Mandolin. It shows the listeners how that mandolin has evolved right up to the present day with pieces from Scarlatti to Hans Werner Henze. Henze? Mandolin? I had no idea. There are even some mandolin special effects on this album. Avi is sitting across from me right now. Avi, it's so great to see you again and welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> A pleasure as always. Last time we did an interview, you told me that your pockets were always full of mandolin plectrums. Do you have any with you today? That is true. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens when you put your trousers and your, your jackets in the washing machine? The, you know, I find them in the filter like uh, half a year after. <laughs> You know, I still have the plectrum you gave me. It's a, oh, it's a real sort of nice. lucky charm. Yeah. How many plectrums does a mandolin player go through? I <laughs> There is mandolin players and then there is me. And I think I just like, I keep losing them. So I buy them in packages of like a hundred. <laughs> well, thank you for making the mandolin an interesting instrument for me. I found it so fascinating that we even did a children's concert together. You remember? Oh, that's right. In Dresden. That's right. And you were the cliched wandering minstrel pretending to be in love with this horn player on stage who was just not interested in you at all <laughs> i seem to remember but the kids really loved it and really thank you for all you've done for this instrument i mean it's been it's been quite a journey hasn't it it is it was a uh, it is still <laughs> a journey and uh, a very interesting one and 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 just the fact that this is kind of for me you know each album is a is a station, you know, it's something that is, you know, I pick a topic and I think about it and I play music about it, I record it and move on. And, uh, you know, the theme of this uh, specific album is the mandolin. Now, it sounds funny, like after all the years I've been doing this and all the records behind me that, you know, the theme of the album is the mandolin. But uh, but it, it really is because, you know, in I think in redefining the mandolin, kind of trying hard to reinvent it, to reprogram uh, the, the um, kind of the conditioned association that people have to it, I uh, went really far from it. And but do you think that's why you had the success of turning the mandolin into a concert instrument? You know, there, there, there hadn't been, I don't think anyone that has done what you have done before. Might be. I wish I knew why I had uh, <laughs> you call it success. I don't know. I'm just doing. Um, you know, I just always played what what I thought is uh, valuable for people to listen. You know, I always thought of you know my responsibility for people coming to listen to a concert or a recording. You know, what would be great for them to listen to? That was my concept. You wanted them to hear interesting music for the mandolin that wasn't necessarily always what was originally written for mandolin. Precisely. 
in your album booklet, you've written a wonderful text yourself about when you, you started to learn the mandolin and actually your teacher was more focused. I mean, he was a violin player officially, wasn't he? And he just picked up the mandolin. <laughs> tell, us, tell us how that worked. Yeah, so... <laughs> you know, when I was eight and I started to go to a mandolin lesson in the local conservatory, my first teacher, really the the most important teacher, I guess, or one of them, uh, name was Simcha Natanzon. He was an immigrant from Russia, from St. Petersburg. Uh, he came to Israel in the 70s. So I was uh, kind of already when I was 14 years old, he retired. I was one of his last students. But when he arrived to Israel from uh, from the Soviet Union, he was, as you as you said, he was a violin. He was a violinist. The legends say he was a really good violinist, you know, from the kind of the Russian Jewish violinist uh, school. And um, how and with the big vibrato, exactly. And oh, that's uh, why he was a good mandolin soul. player. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, so he wasn't a good mandolin player <laughs> at all. That's uh, that's the point in it. Because, so again, the the myth at least is that he arrived to Beersheba, which is, you know, it, it was a rather small town. It's cut off the cultural center in Israel, which is Tel Aviv, maybe even Jerusalem. Beersheba is kind of really the province. And he ended up there for an unknown reason and went to the local conservatory to ask for a job as a violin professor, obviously. Only that uh, they told him there that they they already have a violin professor, but they have these 30 mandolins in the basement. And if he wanted a job, <laughs> he could start a mandolin orchestra. And if not, you know, good luck doing something else. And so he took the challenge, and uh, and that's the thing. He didn't know really how to play the mandolin. How similar is it to play the violin and play the mandolin? I mean, you use your left hand, obviously. You have strings. You have spaces where the notes should be. Yes. So the, I'm a horn player. The, the, sorry, I made that maybe made it sound completely trivial. Like, uh, <laughs> well, I don't know what to compare it to, but well, the basic is that the mandolin and the violin are tuned the same. So that makes it relatively easy to play music that is written for the violin on a mandolin. The left hand is different. I mean, the, pos the posture of the left hand when you hold the violin and the mandolin is different, but the fingering would be more or less the same. In other words, the left hand is less the problem. The right hand, you know, between a plectrum and a bow, there is a... You know, a bigger distance. Let's you can't say. keep the bow in your pockets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so the the funny thing is that he said, "Okay, I'll teach mandolin. I know how it works more or less. It's less complicated than a violin for sure." But when he was holding the pick, or the way he um, thought was intuitively for him the way the right way to hold the pick is completely wrong. In like. Uh, in, he just held it how he thought it exactly. would make a good sound, right? And so today, if you if you go everywhere in the world and you see someone who holds the pick the way I hold it, with three fingers and less, uh, not in two, you can you hundred percent sure that this person comes from Beersheba <laughs> and studied with this <laughs> with this teacher. So did he make you play? Obviously, then a lot of violin pieces because he knew them and it fit well exactly. on the mandolin. Only violin pieces because that's the that's that's what he knew. So it was really it was really interesting because the mandolin in the rest of the world outside of this bubble that this, this teacher created 
was a mandolin like you know like we all think look everyone thinks of the mandolin but in the class for him yes we were holding the mandolins but in his head we were all playing violins you know it's very weird but in his i don't know fantasy his we were the the fact that we were holding mandolins was an uncomfortable technical detail <laughs> but he taught us music he taught us all the violin repertoire as if he was teaching a, a violin class. So we, we, we studied the uh, six sonatas and partitas about Bach and all the concerti, like whatever a violinist would learn in these years, that's what we learned. Nothing related to the like original repertory for the mandolin. And, and therefore we kind of, we, oh, I'm saying me and the other uh, people in the class throughout the generations, we kind of had to develop ourselves the technique to cope with this kind of repertoire, which was much more demanding than the traditional repertoire for the Mandarin. We had to even develop uh, the instrument. So we're like dialoguing with this uh, Mandolin maker uh, that keep improving the Mandarin to be able to even sound good with this kind of repertoire that Simcha Natanzon brought us because he didn't know anything else. So actually, he was grooming you for this job uh, that you've taken on of being the ambassador for your instrument and bringing it onto the concert stage. It, it makes complete sense now that I hear you saying that. <laughs> yes, but I don't think with an intention because he was, Simcha Natanz was anything but a mandolin. Yes, but yes, how lucky, how lucky he was because this is what you did. You took the mandolin and you went out there. Deutsche Grammophon t- took you on. You know, it was like they took on a what? <laughs> a mandolin player. <laughs> Yes, I think this is really a key in my um, like forming into a, a professional musicians because again it was not until a very late age where I did go to Italy and did study with a real Mandarin professor and learned a lot from me. But then it hit me. Then I realized that uh, the problem with the evolution of Mandarin throughout the history is that it was stuck in this conditioning of the Mandarin being an amateur instrument um why an amateur instrument because it's easy to play together it is very intuitive let's say it's it it, the mandolin is this instrument that no one knows but everyone knows about uh and you uh, get very offended if we compare you to the ukulele i remember (laughs) (laughs) i mean you in in general not you personally (laughs) no but it is Exactly this. The ukulele now is the, you know, the, the, the living room instrument that every house with a three years old kid would have. Uh, that was the mandolin or the guitar. The plug string concept is so intuitive that it makes all plug string instruments, if we look at them as one big family, the most popular musical instruments, the most popular instruments to play as amateur together it's not very hard from like from zero to playing something that sounds acceptable it's pretty quick it's not like um, the violin they would have to practice you know, three years to get the ball right to have some kind of an acceptable sound or not to mention the french horn and other woodwinds instruments and um it is it, it is quite intuitive it is quite uh you know the man the plug string instrument come very early in the music uh, musical instruments uh, evolution uh, because of that. And that's what always throughout crossing epochs and cultures and, um, you know, geographic uh, locations, this is, it was always a plug st- string instrument playing a main role. 
So you went to Italy and you had to relearn, basically, because he told you, no, you're holding your, your pick wrong and you're, you know, you have to relearn learn new repertoire, which was actually the original repertoire. Exactly. So up until the, when I graduated music the academy in Jerusalem, so I was already 23 years old. I've, uh, I've had my, uh, you know, master's from the Jerusalem Music Academy also there. Moti Schmidt was my professor. He was a violinist. He never touched even a mandolin. He was sitting there in, in, his, um, in his class with his Stradivari, and I was holding the mandolin. And again, there was nothing about the mandolin that was said or told or taught or was even important. Only music and uh, expression. And you find the way to do it, but uh, that was the, there wasn't, again, the mandolin was just a, a technical detail. Then when I was, was 23, freshly graduated, I already won some national competitions. I've already played here and there with the Israeli Philharmonic, with our orchestra, you know, starting to But never have mandolin my, pieces. Never mandolin pieces, <laughs> no. <laughs> we didn't have them in the library. But then I, I asked my, I really literally asked myself, how can you... Okay, so now, now what? You know, you have this moment after music education uh, or any education, I guess you go out of the university and it's like, okay, now <laughs> have to figure out what to do. And it really, I remember it's like, can I call myself a mandolin player without, completely without this part of the puzzle, without knowing anything about the mandolin, really? So then I decided to go to Ugo Orlandi, this, the teacher that is, uh, is really the reference point, I think, in, uh, in mandolin education and research. So a person that really digged in um, libraries across Italy and the world to find these rare uh, pieces that were written originally for the mandolin and uh, building a classic cathedral that uh, uh, he was uh, back then uh, teaching in Padova. That's where I went. Now he's in Milano. And, uh, and I said, okay, let's, let's fill in this puzzle so I can then, you know, complete and then figure out who I am as a mandolin player. And, and I remember the first day at school there, <laughs> it was like, yeah, play us something. So, of course, I played Bach on my weird mandolin from Tel Aviv with my weird way to hold a peak. And uh, he said, no, 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 no. This is not a mandolin. <laughs> this is not how you hold a peak. And Bach, why do you play Bach? Bach didn't write for the mandolin. Why do you play that? How did you feel? I felt there was a formative moment where I said, like, okay, I arrived here. I'm in Italy alone with a quest so i really uh there was a moment where i said like okay i have to lock my ego in a, like a different building in order to get something out in of the this violin process. building <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i think for the first half a year i was just retraining my um my hand to hold a pick the traditional way i was like playing g major scales or open strings forever now i'm 23 i've as I mentioned, I already done stuff in my life, and there I'm sitting with the entire class because in Italy you would like learn also with the, the rest of the class um, present in your. So it was a really kind of, and they were all younger than than me, of course. So I was like this, you know, older twenty three years old but that's very um, hard because there's this peer if any for, for the listeners that don't that haven't experienced music college there's this sort of peer pressure when you get there maybe it's better now but when i was at college you you have the feeling people only like you for as good as as as, as much as 
you know, how well you could play. And I, I suffered under that because I had to do what you described um, for the horn. I had to do an embouchure change. Mm. So I went back to, ba- you know, basics and were playing long notes and scales. And I felt like a total loser because everyone else was playing Strauss and Mozart. Yes, but that was a lesson for life. And I'm so happy that at that moment I was wise enough to, 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 to take this lesson. And, uh, and the next three years, everything I could learn from Ugo Orlandi, whether I agreed with it or not, I took. And uh, embedded then afterwards in my technique, in my kind of weird whatever coming up as a Mandarin player, it's like I... I took whatever made sense for me uh, from what he had to give me and uh, and that was that was crucial I think for my growing also as a, as a as a person as a young profession as it was really a formative uh, experience so you're bringing bringing yourself and your mandolin back to the roots with with this album and when when I read the title of it and I started listening to it you know and heard the Vivaldi and and thought okay this is what we're going to have this sort of old 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 school old style mandolin playing and then all of a sudden you know you get David Bruce I was like hang on a minute that sounds like mandolin but it certainly is not and then mm-hmm. I looked up you know the dates of it all it's it's a complete mixture it's not just mandolin as it was but mandolin as it is in the present day. Exactly. The mandolin is really a unique instrument, like no other instrument in a, in a classical music tradition. And because it was so popular and so much related to developments which are not musical, uh, um, you know, like social demographic changes in Europe or elsewhere, in Japan, in the United States, there was always... A, a, um, a trigger which is completely not related to music which made this instrument popular in that country or in that period and so on and so forth that's like why. what i mean i'm really interested to know well, like in japan why was the madeline suddenly I and mean, you've got so many fans in japan it's, it's incredible <laughs> yeah. i thought there were a lot of horn players there but there's the mandolin well, in world japan, is also huge I mean, yeah so japan for example just to give you a, a brief example this is like by far the most the country where you have the most amateur Mandarin players. Almost every college or high school in Japan has a Mandarin orchestra. I lived in Milano. You would think that Italy is the you know the land of Mandarins. In Milano, I think there were two Mandarin orchestras, maybe 15 members each. In Tokyo, there are over 100 Mandarin orchestras. <laughs> and, uh, and You must re- be a pop star <laughs> for them. I don't know. <laughs> But the reason he just even traveled to, and this all a uh, kind of Italian uh, beginning of 20th century mandolin style. And the reason is that the son of the Caesar, in the, uh, the Japanese Caesar, in the beginning of the 20th century, he studied in Naples. He went to the university, kind of Erasmus and a cultural um, exchange, uh, fell in love with a mandolin, with the, the culture of playing the mandolin in orchestras. Mandolin uh, in the beginning of 20th century was mostly popular for playing together in clubs or in orchestras. So people with the same kind of social class or the same uh, group of interests would gather together to play the mandolin, you know, afternoon or at night or on weekends uh, to experience the music that they love to, um, to hear. So in other words, if you wanted to listen to your favorite opera, uh, aria from you know Verdi or Rossini or whatever, you you had to play it yourself. You know at that time, so yeah, piano was also very popular. But as a social 
activity, the mandolin orchestra was just the perfect uh, uh, vehicle for that. So the son of the Caesar took this, uh, imported it to uh, Japan. Then they invited the, the main figure of that time, the main mandolin figure in Naples, Raffaele Calace, a composer himself, uh, to, to Japan to make this kind of cultural exchange, to you know, teach them how to make mandolins in the Italian styles and, and so on. So and just exploded there. So this is just one example so the mandolin's oh. been really as well, important in, in a lot of cultural history in a, in, a, in a lot of countries where you wouldn't expect it. Yes. Like, <laughs> like Japan. Yes. But, well, my point is that the mandolin, so not a lot of composers wrote for the mandolin. There are composers that are kind of what I call mandolin composers. There are figures that are important to the development of the instruments. Each generation has a few figures like that. They mainly composed or they exclusively composed for the mandolin. And uh, would, would a, a mere horn player no, have heard of any of them? Never. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Figures like Raffaele Calace, the Napolitan, on, or, uh, you know, other, but deliberately excluded them in this album, not out of uh, disrespect, of course, or their role in the evolution of the instrument, but because, and here's my point, not a lot of classical composers wrote for the mandolin. But when they did write for the mandolin, it was for a reason. It was because the mandolin at their time, from their point of view, was a symbol for something, was a metaphor for something. And in this album, I wanted to explore that. I wanted to, to ask myself, why did Henze write for the mandolin? What, what kind of association was for him? or Beethoven, or Vivaldi, or all, all these composers. When a composer writes for the mandolin, there is also a symbol for something, is as, as a personal world of associations to the instrument that reflects in the music that they write. Are the associations, did you find out that these associations are quite similar, or did everybody have his totally different agenda? Totally different. This is also something I always ask. You know, I commission a lot of new pieces. You have commissioned, <laughs> I, I looked it up, you have commissioned over 20 concertos, right, for yeah, the mandolin. Correct. And you have chosen <laughs> over, eight, you've commissioned over 80 solo pieces. That's a lot. Yes. Yeah. That's I masses. <laughs> You're going down in history. <laughs> um, you know, there is, the developments of other instruments were always kind of, the motto of it was always kind of this triangle or the circle between the um, instrumentalist, the composer, and the instrument maker. So I always like to give this example, as we know, for example, if we take the piano, for example, there is an evolution in the, the instrumentalist, their technique, the instrument itself, and the composition written for the instrument. So if we had a time machine and we went back to Mozart time and we took the best possible piano player at Mozart time and we put a Achmaninov third concerto on the stand, would, there was no way they could play it. And the piano then. would break, probably. And the piano <laughs> would break. But the fact that at Mozart time, the you know, best instrument, the best pianist, inspired the composers uh, to write for the piano. The composers challenged, they took the technique to the extremes, like composers do, <laughs> I find it. Uh, Tell me about it, yeah. players. <laughs> they take, they, they, especially if they're unconditioned, they take the technique to the extremes, uh, forcing, quote, quote, the, the, the players to, you know, to step up their game 
uh, to to find ways to to play this music and also going to the instrument makers to improve the instrument in order to sound good with these kind of new challenges. This was always, always the motor that led to this development, this natural evolution of uh, in, in classical music. And the mandolin somehow got stuck in this, uh, um, in this process and, and kind of left in this amateur environment. Do you mean the mandolin as, as an instrument, as this piece of wood? It does, did that not make the, the huge improvements like a, like a piano or a, or a horn? This, would you play Hensa on the same instrument you'd play Vivaldi on? That's a very good question. And it led me to another, another interesting thing, which is unique about the mandolin, which is connected to all, is that the mandolin is the only instrument that I know that doesn't have uh, as an instrument a standard you know, the mandolin has four double strings, right? It's tuned E, A, D, G. Uh, that's sort of universal. DG fits the- stuff. <laughs> 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 uh, and, uh, and that's pretty much universal. But because the mandolin traveled from Europe, for example, in the States, and in the States, it's got uh, adopted by bluegrass music, yeah? And uh, bluegrass music with a different aesthetics, with a different desired sound, remodeled the mandolin uh, to what is the normal American mandolin would be today, which is a flat back, it has a little curl, usually the Gibson F style is the kind of the best for bluegrass uh, music, it have F holes and not a round hole. So the, the mandolin they use in America looks quite different even sounds different from the one you would see in Italy, which is also very different from the one you find in Brazil, where they play choro music on the bandolin, what they call it, which is, uh, again, it has a different shape. It has a different sound. This is different from the German mandolins. And I'm seeing your new album. <laughs> that That's going to be the next one. Yeah, mandolins from around the world. <laughs> Might be, yeah. So, Just call me. It's, you know. <laughs> so it's not like... You know, if you take the flute, you go to Brazil, you go to Japan, the flute is a flute. It looks like a flute. It sounds like a flute. The violin, the French horn, the cello, the mandolin, no. It has so many different applications, but they're all like instruments that have, yeah, of course, this thing in common, how they tune and more or less the sound, but completely different shapes. And also my mandolin, which is, you know, doesn't follow any tradition at all. The positive side is it sets free the instrument makers it, to... Is it built for you? Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sets free uh, mandolin makers still today around the world to, to not to be, yeah, to, to, to follow any tradition and then to invent or develop or, you know, search for new sounds. So what do you change if you play the, your mandolin for um, Vivaldi and, and, and Beethoven, this wonderful piece by Beethoven? I was so happy to, to, to discover that. And then Hans Werner Henser, Benheim. What do you change about your sound? How do you physically change the sound to fit to the genre? Good question. I personally, I don't change the sound. I play my, mandol- my mandolin. This is my voice, what I'm used to. And uh, I just, I feel that this is the best way I can express and deliver uh, the music, as opposed to, let's say, another kind of project that would be playing Vivaldi on a Venetian mandolin, which is a totally different instrument, even tuned in fourth and on in fifth. 
uh, playing Beethoven in what was the Viennese mandolin at the time. Again, four single strings, people assume, was the mandolin that used at the time in Vienna or four double strings. Completely different instruments. I don't know, Hense, for example, what kind of mandolin of all the possibilities that were there. In uh, We wrote this in 73. Probably the Italian mandolin style, but, you know, who knows? So it, it, this is not my thing. You know, I had this phase trying to be philological, trying to be historically informed. And, but I feel that the, 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 the importance of it comes from the music, the expression, the rhetorics of Vivaldi is more important for me than how really it would have sounded at Vivaldi's time. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, really, thank you. As I said in the introduction, mandolin was not an instrument I was particularly interested in. And I'm just listening to you, like, forgetting all my questions, because it really is so fascinating. So let's go back to your album, your new album, The Art of the Mandolin. The The second piece on, well, I'm not quite sure of the order yet, of exactly how you, the order you want to have it. I've only heard your mm-hmm. your unofficial um, or, order. The Beethoven, this wonderful duo, I read that it was for mandolin and piano. And then I hear this luscious heart playing. And then I read it. It's Annaline Lenertz yeah. from the Vienna Philharmonic. Um, what a wonderful partnership you two you two are, really. Oh, yeah, she's fantastic. And we even had the pleasure to play this in concerts already. And, you know, the Beethoven, for example, he wrote this piece for um, a young maiden he was in love with. So a little backup. Again, the mandolin at Beethoven times is an instrument you would find mainly in, you know, noble families. Uh, this is a salon instrument. It's not an instrument that uh, you would find people play outside because it's not loud enough, not even in, not also in a concert hall. So it was this salon instrument that was related to an amateur, like a, um, a musical education of the, the a young maiden from a noble family, aristocrat family. That was kind of the image that a mandolin had at this time in Italy, in Vienna, in Prague, and so on. And a lot of portraits from that time. And when, when you look at uh, pictures that include the mandolin, are they're usually held by these uh, you know, young maidens playing the mandolin. A little bit like the harp and the spinet, the harpsichord. This was like the bonton instrument to play if you are well-educated. So that's what it would have been accompanied by, the spinet. Probably. Probably. We yes. don't know exactly, but it says exactly. on it for piano. And that's why yeah. I was a bit surprised to hear a harp. Yeah, some of them, it said the title is like uh, for mandolin and uh, and harpsichord, really, the manuscript. So you just talk, took off the saccord. <laughs> <laughs> it's one way to look at it. Uh, I just thought, you know, because this is, Beethoven wrote four pieces for the mandolin. I, I only brought one in this recording, not two, you know. Uh, uh, it would have uh, take too much attention otherwise. But again, these are a little love letters. He, he dedicates them to this, this young Contest, Contest Josephine Clary. And even a dedication on top of the score is Paul Abel JC, with this kind of <laughs> very, int- for that time, is like extremely intimate uh, dedication. Uh, with his, uh, you know, initials. It means, like, whoever needs to understand, understands. And uh, so, you know, there is this thing that for sure there was something, you know, there was something going on there between the two. And uh, no surprise, she played the mandolin. She was a singer and she played the mandolin. And uh, themselves, these four little pieces are not, for a mandolin player, they're really easy. So, you know, I would say she maybe she was really beautiful, 
Not sure how good a mandolin player she was, because they're really easy. Nice face, shame about the technique. <laughs> you just never know. It does. I mean, it's but it's it's beautiful. The lines are beautiful. Okay, the the notes mm-hmm. maybe that not that hard, but the the musical lines are stunning. Yeah, you feel you know it's the Beethoven. It's not the Beethoven from the symphonies or from the the piano sonatas. Even this is a very young Beethoven. Very they're very simple. I think he wrote them. And for her, of course, to play. So they're quite simple. The harpsichord part are, is very virtuosic in some of them. Not in the adagio that, that I recorded, but there are variations where the harpsichord really kind of made me think that he just wanted to impress her. They, he wanted them to play together and then for her to see what a brilliant musician he was <laughs> or something like that. So choosing the harp for this was to create this kind of salon atmosphere it's a it's a, in this time the color of this piece in this album is that connotation is noble family a, salo, a viennese salon and uh, this chamber music played very delicate very softly um, extremely sweet it's really beautiful. And Annaline um, joins you then later on in the album. You have a love, lovely plucked string family on your album. How, how did you choose them this, all? Are they, are know, they friends of yours that you've worked with a lot? Or <laughs> It's interesting because it was challenging to collect the pieces for this album. So all my life, we're going back a little bit to like my formation as a mandolin player, but all my life I played mainly pieces written for other instruments. That was my big shout. Like my first album with Deutsche Grammophon was, you know, we had this discussion. Maybe we do Vivaldi first uh, because for the Mandarin, then we do Bach. No, I said like the, my first album on a big label have to be Bach because I wanted kind of to shake the grounds. I wanted people to forget whatever they think about the Mandolin, and I wanted critics to, to the titles to be Bach on Mandolin. Five question marks? How, you know, I wanted kind of to make this uh, noise and to to break this conditioning that people had for the mandolin. I did it with so much effort that I kind of forgot, <laughs> uh, forgot the mandolin on the way. And I just realized that really I, I, I commissioned a lot of pieces kind of to get the mandolin, to bring it back to the track of uh, of music uh, evolution. But, but also simply, I, I just enjoyed playing amazing pieces by these composers, Bach, Brahms. You know, they didn't write for the Mandarin. It's not a good enough reason for me not to play this gorgeous music. Nevertheless, in this album, I said like, okay, let's, let's, uh, this is my canvas. Now, this is the topic of this album. What are my, the best pieces I can think of originally written for the Mandarin? I was, it was really challenging to get to 60 minutes. Of course, it's, not the only, I had to exclude pieces that I already recorded or, you know, pieces that just didn't fit. But the interesting thing is that beside the Mandarin Concerto by Vivaldi, which is for strings, all the other pieces on this album are with the Plax strings family. Exactly. You're not, you're not all the soloist. There's wonderful solos from like all sorts of other instruments, the Teorb, um, yes, <laughs> if that's the right, that. right way to pr- pronounce it. <laughs> oh, who knows? Teorbo in, in Italian. Teorbo, I guess, yeah. which is, you know, the lute practically, the harpsichord, of course, the harp and the guitar. It's a real family occasion. <laughs> that is the plaque string family in the classical Western tradition. And it's lovely because, you know, the, I think with uh, Hense, with Ben Chaim, and of course with David Bruce, who wrote for the whole five instruments, there is this exploration of like 
what would be the equivalent of a string quartet or a woodwind quintet of the plex strings. So a group of instruments, a chamber music format of instruments that are similar yet different enough to create this new bigger instrument with a lot of possibilities, expression possibilities, sound, sonorities, and so on. And I think, uh, you know, for Hanses, so he chose the mandolin, guitar, and harp. Paul Benheim, for different reasons we might talk about, chose the harpsichord, the guitar and the mandolin. And David Bruce took them all. <laughs> David this. Bruce is really, it's like <laughs> pop music for, for the plucked yeah, family. Yeah, yes. It's such an <laughs> It's great. Opera. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very fun to It's to like play. real dance. You could play that in a club, I think. You totally. could dance to that. Oh, yes. <laughs> totally. And again, for each one of these composers, it was a specific trigger, a specific symbol uh, or imagination of what uh, what the mandolin or even what the plucks, the broader pluck strings family and, is. And your fellow musicians, your family, uh, were they your family before? Or yeah. have you found oh, them? Oh, yes. Now? Yes, definitely. I've played with all of them before. Uh, there are people that are, you know, they're the best in, on their instruments and, and dear friends. Uh, Isaac Hoshon is playing the harpsichord, and this is uh, this, that's from the original cast of the Paul Ben Chaim piece um, that uh, we played. I think it was one of my first experiences as a professional musician. I was still a student at the academy when uh, Yuval Vital, a guitarist, now a composer uh, of himself and a multidisciplinary artist who lives in Italy. But back then he was uh, studying guitar at the Music Academy in Jerusalem and was working at the National Archives. One day he comes to me, he was dusting one of the shelves in the archive, and there he found an unedited, unpublished piece, manuscript, by Paul Ben Chaim. Paul Ben Chaim is the national composer of Israel, is what Baruch for, uh, you know, Hungary is and so on, and a composer that, uh, you know, tried in his language to kind of form the um, kind of national uh, classical music language in Israel, considering all the raw music, folklore music material that he found there. Anyway, so he composed, we, we all as students know his symphonies, his piano music and so on. But then this piece comes and it's for mandolin, guitar and harpsichord. Uh, it's just so surprising that he wrote for this combination. Never What's in the, the date on that? That's from 1968. Yes, gosh. And, uh, and, uh, and no one ever knew about this piece. No one ever played it. And here we find it many years also after Ben Chaim himself uh, passed away. And we play it together. We, like, we reconstruct the piece from the manuscript. I remember I was back at the time a student. I knew how to uh, work the software for like notation software finale. And we're trying to like decode Ben Chaim's really bad handwriting of the almost final draft. He still had some question marks. He wrote all his doubts in German. So for example, it would be Bar and he writes himself zweimal question mark or like to cut this or cut that. Or uh, we had to also take some composing decisions for Ben Chaim after some trying out. And, uh, and we premiered practically the piece some 16 years after it was, uh, after Ben Chaim uh, passed away. That kind of gave me the cue to go on and commission new pieces. First for this ensemble, harpsichord, man and guitar, and then for many other 
ensembles with a mandolin as a solo instrument, as part of a chamber music group and so on. It's fantastic. You've not only encouraged mandolin players to go out and play other pieces like Bach and, you know, Vivaldi and the, the non-mandolin pieces and everything else. You've given them pieces that, to keep in their mandolin traditions. I mean, it's, it's really mm-hmm. fantastic. So we've still, we've still got um, Scarlatti, Scarlatti is Scarlatti. I <laughs> loved, loved the mandolin, um, loved that piece. Yeah. Um, it came right after the, the Solima from 2018, yes. where the, the promised special effects were to be yes. found. <laughs> I had to rewind and listen to those a couple of times because I thought, what is that? You know, how, how was that even made? Is there a percussionist in this piece? Uh, yes, you see. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, where is you? Abby's got his mandolin. Of course he's got his mandolin here. And he's got about 20 plectrums, picks in his pockets. So the special... So the Scarlatti and the Solima are binded together because they're both South Italians. <laughs> and I thought they had some of this energy and warmth that is connected to them despite the you know 300 years or so in between the special effect you're talking about first of all there's tapping on going on on the left hand in this specific point in without plucking i'm just hammering my fingers now on the on the uh, fretboard this and then while the right hand is just strumming really strongly behind the bridge so you know this is this is the sound where you know a mandolin player should in play. front of the bridge ah. this is behind the bridge so it's like this white noise which has this is more yeah it has it's, more it's, like, it's more it com- percussive than it that. comes at a perfect time on the album because you just say whoops what was that you know what 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 <laughs> And Henze, get to Henze because I was, I, I must admit, I had no idea that Henze mm-hmm. had composed anything for mandolin. Uh, we should have known better because actually he was such a, an old fox. They say in German, yeah. an alter Fuchs. Yeah. He, he actually did everything. Um, and uh, was this a piece you'd played often before you decided to record it? Not so often because, again, you don't have this, the opportunity to perform this music. I think that the, what really inspired me is... Uh, a concert a couple of years ago at the El Philharmonie, where the idea was to create an evening, a program, celebrating black strings. So every all kind of combinations and all kind of repertoire I could find. How for. many members of the pluck string family do we have? Can you even list them? There's like so in we we restricted drastically for the classical Western music tradition. Then I would say the mandolin, the guitar, obviously the harp. The harpsichord, which is a keyboard instrument, but actually the keys pluck a string instead of hammering in, on uh, piano, and and the lute, the lute or the lute family, the lute yorbo, and so on, uh, which is more a baroque instrument, but also, you know, some modern composers w- would still use it. This would be the five instruments. Because I could once count. you go a little bit, you know, more into the to the Middle Eastern world, you no, have then, like bazooki like, oud. Uh, of course, then you have you know pluck string instruments in 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 traditional music in folk music. You have in absolutely every single musical tradition ever existed in the world. <laughs> you know, uh, you you know, you name a country, I'll give you the yeah. pluck string instrument uh, that uh, that is related to it. But you name bazooki balalaika. Kora in African music, Oud in uh, Arabic music, uh, Charango in uh, you know in South America, and so on and so forth. Really endless list. But in the kind of classical European music, the, these were the five main instruments. 
And so, uh, yeah, so we found old pieces, Baroque and on 20th century and 21st century that, that has all these combinations. And for the grand finale, I commissioned David Bruce to write this finale piece for all, for all five instruments. But hence, say it's interesting because it's a piece from 1973. I didn't have the chance to speak with Hans about this piece. So I'm really not sure what triggered him to do. But, you know, he worked most of his life in Rome. He was very much attached to, you know, the Santa Cecilia atmosphere. And the mandolin is Italian. So it's a color, it's a color that exists there in, in every, like in the... Italian uh, collective uh, world of associations. The mandolin is there as the you know the Italian folk instrument, right? But interestingly enough, he wrote he, he titled the first movement Carillon, right? So a little music box. Now the first movement in this three movements piece is the longest, is the main one. I feel like that the second movement recitative and the third movement mask are kind of expanding an element from the first movement. So if we Take the first movement, which is six minutes long, entitled Carillon. This is all, and again, it's mandolin, harp, and guitar. And I think Hansi imagined all these kind of little music boxes, little fantasy land. And I always imagine like this virtual tour in an imaginary toy shop because you have all these kind of little toys and some of them have springs and then they explode and the springs fly out and there is this little cadenza with the guitar always like remind me like of the sad clown maybe like the flamenco clown guitar is forgotten in some shelf and it's really it's constructed of like little little episodes each of them with full of character a very expressive for you know for hence for 20th century piece it's it's just full of imagination that comes from the fact that these are like plucky plucky strings it's great from scarlatti and vivaldi to henze your your new album um thank you it's been incredible to hear all about it and i've learned an incredible amount about the the mandolin usually at the end of our deutsche grammophon podcast there is the very famous horn challenge which you are an expert at because uh -huh. you have taken it before twice <laughs> twice you've yes. done it twice <laughs> and um i i i yeah you got better each time yeah. I, you mm -hmm. challenged me to play the mandolin and i don't <laughs> remember being, i but i did i could appreciate that it was actually a good instrument to just pick up and strum you know you put a, a mandolin in the hand of a baby and you know they can usually strum unfortunately with the horn they'd rather just hit it or sit on it or do something like that unfortunately because we're in the middle of this 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 terrible pandemic time i can't offer you my horn to play <laughs> on because you know there's all these special rules about what you can touch and blow and yeah the horn is quite a spitty instrument so i'll spare you that but i was thinking we need some sort of challenge to finish with What can you think of? What, I mean, I can, I've can. i got my horn here. You've got your, your ukulele there. Can I challenge you? You can challenge me to something, but uh, I don't know whether I'll be able to take it or not. It's a sing-along. Now, now I'm getting a bit worried. I've just picked up my horn. It's freezing <laughs> cold after um, 45 minutes of talking to Avi. Right. Okay. So what are you going to... What so can I do? What is the challenge today? Mozart also wrote for the Mandarin. He did. One piece. He did. One little canzonetta in Don Giovanni and this is also like again ah. like I said before for a reason because the symbol again of aristocracy he in this uh, song the uh, Vieni alla Finestra you know, it's a canzonetta from Don Giovanni accompanied by mandolin that he would hold himself 
and tempting the young maiden uh, from a it's like the cliche family. that I was taught at school. <laughs> That's what we go went go back to the beginning, and so. this is the number in in the opera where we horns have free. So we always turn around to see how pretty the singer is <laughs> on the stage that, uh, that we usually can't see because he's singing to her up at, in in a, a la finestra. Exactly. Okay, so what key are we in, Avi? D major. Oh, gosh. So I guess this is the, the horn challenge to turn around <laughs> and Avi has challenged me to try and be the singer. Okay, let's have a go. All right. This is the song everyone knows. I won that challenge You won because I had a blackout and you <laughs> did. Nice. I think, well done. Thank you for that. Now, actually, that, that was only because I always have free during that aria. And I've been list I listened to it many times when I was at the <laughs> Staatsoper. <laughs> Abby, you are really a gift for our music world. Thank you so much. And all the best with the, with the new album. And thank I you. could podcast with you every week. <laughs> ah, pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you, Avi, and thank you all for listening, for all of you that tuned in from all around the world. We had such fun doing this podcast for you, and I look forward to seeing you back here very soon on the Deutsche Grammophon's International Podcast Series. Bye-bye for now. Mm-hmm.